take your Bibles, if you have them this evening, and turn to 1 John chapter 3. John is writing to his readers because they are believers. He is warning them against false teachers who would come into their midst, being from them, but not of them, who deny the Son and so deny the Father. He calls for the truth to abide in them through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had promised unto them. These are the things we spoke of last time we were together. He then exhorts them to abide that they might not be ashamed at Christ's coming, knowing that it is right that those who would be in Christ would live in righteousness as Christ is righteous. And today, John is going to continue through this context of thinking, so much so that I almost did initially try to combine this with last week's sermon. I was hoping to go through at least verse 5, but it it was not to be so. But today, he's going to continue along this context of thinking. And once again, knowledge of our context is going to be very important. So I hope you have your thinking caps on. You remember what we've talked about already, because that's going to be important as we continue through. And let's just go ahead and dig in because we've got a lot to say this evening. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says this. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now remember a couple of weeks ago when we read John's exhortation, Love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. It began with John's deliberate attempt to affirm his confidence in his reader standing in Christ. We spent a good portion of that sermon uh, looking through as Paul, as, excuse me, not Paul, John, as John spoke about this idea that he had confidence in the fathers and the young men, in the children, that they were in Christ, that they knew the Father and that they knew the Son. And the reason why we said John is doing this is because he's using some very distinct and compelling language, language which is uh, in some sense is very hard, very heavy, and he wants to make sure that they are not distracted from what he's saying with uh, unique ideas as it would relate to this relationship to salvation. And today John is going to do much the same thing. He begins with this exhortation. And he he starts it by establishing the context within which he speaks. Behold, he says, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Think through this with me, as John thinks through this with us. It's easy to fall into the trap of losing perspective in the Christian life. I sometimes appeal to the this uh, as uh, in regard to knowing God, excuse me, where people say, well, if God wants me to know him so badly, if God really wants me to understand him, or if, if he wanted to reveal himself to us, why did he make it so hard? Why did he go out of his way to hide himself? When in fact, when we step back and we think about it practically, not only has God placed his fingerprints all over creation, but he has given us a really big book of revelation of himself with the express intent of revealing himself to us so that in reality, from the proper perspective, we say, wow, God has really gone out of his way to make himself known to us, to give us the means by which to understand him. But you know, when we're tired, when we're confused, when we're discouraged, or 
or when we're being selfish, self-centered, we can lose perspective on this truth, which in normal times, which when we're walking right with the Lord and with others, is abundantly obvious to us that God wants us to know Him. Well, the same can kind of be said about the nature of God's love. Hard times are not unusual for any who live in this human existence, Christians included. Life is filled with pain, confusion, fear, loss. Things don't always go as we would want them to or expect them to. And when these difficulties and these trials come, we are tempted to question God's love for us. We're tempted to wonder if maybe God is angry at us. We're tempted to think that somehow we must have failed to measure up and that God has given us the cold shoulder. But then we come to a thought such as the one that John lays before us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Do you know how I know that my heart is lying to me? When it questions God's love and intentions toward me because of the things that are happening in my life. When I am walking discouraged and I say, maybe it is that God just doesn't like me anymore. Maybe it is that God is angry at me. Do you know how I know that those things are lies? Because it's completely absurd to think that a God who loved me enough to send His only begotten Son to die on the cross, not just for me, but for all men, even those who will reject Him to their dying breath, it is absurd for me to think that this God who would do all this for me when I don't deserve it, when I am not worthy of it, when I can't even become worthy of it, that this same God would decide that he just doesn't like me anymore. It's actually an absurd thought. And that's the simplicity that we're brought back to in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Consider the depth of the love that God has for you in that through his son Jesus Christ, you might be called a child of the living God. Consider the depth of the love that God has for you, that God pursued you at the expense of His own Son, that He placed His love upon you, that He brought you into His kingdom and into His house. And not for anything that you did do for Him, not for anything you could do for Him, but only because He chose to place His love upon you. And it is for this reason... John says, therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. It is for this reason that you and I are foreigners to this world. And again, when we say to this world, world has already been defined for us, right? Let's keep it within the context of the definition. The world, as defined by John in 1 John chapter 2, is that which is dominated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That that idea in the world, that context of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those that live by those principles and those standards, they don't know us. They don't understand us. They cannot relate themselves to us because they don't know Christ. They don't know this love. They do not. They have not experienced that love. They cannot relate themselves properly to this love because they are not in Christ. But you are in Christ if you are in Christ. They have not responded unto and accepted Christ's love, but you have 
responded to and accepted Christ's love if indeed you have responded to and accepted Christ's love. And this does not make you better than they are in any way. This does not make you better than those that are in the world. We're all sinners. You happen to be a sinner saved by grace. But it should give you a very different perspective. It should mean a different way that you view the world that is around you, that you view the things of this life, that you view your purpose in this life and your role on this earth. It should remind you that you are a foreigner in this world, that you are just a foreigner passing through. Don't expect to be understood by the people that are dedicated to the spirit of this age. It's not going to happen. They can't understand you because they do not live in the context of the love that has been shed abroad into your heart that has made you one who is called the sons of God. Don't expect to be understood by the institutions of this age. Don't expect to be accepted by the cultures of this world. We as American Christians have been blessed to live in a land with values such as that culture has been in times even dominated by those values, at least accepting those values, we're blessed to live in a place where our culture has generally accepted us, allowed us to do what we're going to do, and there hasn't been a tremendous amount of abrasion between Western culture and the Christian church. But this is not what Christians should expect. Even if we, we receive it, that's a wonderful blessing, but we should not expect it, nor should we much, much less demand it from the world that is around us. The world will not know us because the world never operated under the Spirit of Christ. Where, what is the world operating under? Well, from 1 John chapter 2, the world is operating under the Spirit of Antichrist. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these things are not of the Father, but are of the world. Antichrist. John goes on to say then in verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, John continues in this contemplation. We're walking along with John as he's contemplating. And the first thing that he contemplated was the love that God has for us. And in that God has this great love for us, we are foreigners in this world. The world does not know us. The world does not know him. So the world will not know us because we are in him. And then he goes on to say, we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know something. So we don't just understand the reality of this love, but also the implications of this love. As a son of God, in all honesty, we don't know what we shall be one day. God has not seen fit to tell us what our eternal state is going to look like very, in, in much detail what the resurrection will be like in much detail. We know that there will be a resurrection. We know that we have been promised a resurrection. We know that in the resurrection we will receive new physical bodies, that these will be fitted unto a complete incorruptible existence, rather fitted for an eternal existence, a spiritual existence. We know that death will be swallowed up in victory because the scriptures tell us such. But we really don't know what we shall be. Except for this. This is the one thing we know. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. This is the hope. This is the promise that God's people have known 
and have rested in for thousands of years. Going all the way back to the time of David, David wrote of this hope. He said in John 17, 15, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. There's coming a day, Christian. There's coming a day. What if it were today? We just sang. There's coming a day when the righteous dead will awake into the resurrection. And on that day, we will be like Christ. And John helps us understand what this means when he says, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. To be like Christ does not mean that we are going to awake one day and be divine as Christ is divine. No, that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that the manner in which we will be like Christ is that we will, like he has, receive a resurrected body unto eternal life as he has been resurrected unto eternal life. And this means that our mortal, our corrupt flesh will put on immortality and incorruption. But it also means that we will be blessed to know the mysteries which today are beyond our grasp to understand. We actually find the best insight into this idea in 1 Corinthians 13. That's the great chapter on charity, the great chapter on love. And in this chapter, Paul is teaching about the preeminence of charity in the Christian life. How important it is that we love one another. First John talks a lot about that too. And as he does so, he calls upon us to do all things in love, assuring us that apart from love, no spiritual power, no spiritual gift, no spiritual calling has any true value unto virtue. And as Paul concludes his thoughts in 1 Corinthians 13, he says this in verses 8 through 13. He says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. These are all the gifts that, that, that one could receive in Christ as, as we consider what Paul was dealing with in that time and in that place. And he says, We have these things that are here, and they shall cease, but the thing that never goes away is love. For we know in part, he says in verse 9, and we prophesy in part, our knowledge, the things that we know from the Word of God, that's only a partial. We, 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 don't, have all, we don't have all of the insights. Our, our prophecies, that's the fourth telling of the Word of God, we have that in part. We don't have all the insights. When I walk through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, when I walk through the prophecies of Daniel, I can give you some of what, what, what will happen, but there's a lot that we haven't been told. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, he says, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. God has not seen fit to, give us, to tell us everything. As it relates to the things in heaven, we are given quite minor amounts of information. We can see through a glass. We can see through the window of God's word into the things regarding the resurrection, into the things regarding that eternal life. And we can see through that glass, but that glass, it's as if it's misted. It's as if that it's obscured to a degree. We can see the shadows of the other side. We can see things moving, but, but we can't identify it. There's not enough clarity for that. We only see shadows of the future, but we know it's there. We have assurances of its rewards through Jesus Christ. And while we are waiting, 
We have been given very clear instruction as to what our part is to play right here and right now. We haven't been told everything, but we have been told this. Faith, love, charity. uh, Excuse me. Faith, hope, charity. Right? We've We've been told that. Faith, hope, charity. When I cross that divide, when the resurrection becomes my reality, on that day I will no longer see through a glass darkly. On that day I shall know even as I am known. On that day I will see it clearly. I will know Christ as Christ knows me. I will be like Christ for I shall see him as he is. I will have achieved that righteousness that I so long for. I will have achieved that incorruption that my heart aches for. I will know what it is to be without sin. I will know what it is to be without pain, to be without sorrow, to be without fear. Today is not that day, but that day is coming. This mortal will put on immortality and death will be swallowed up in victory. This is our hope. That the word, and that word in the Bible, that word hope in the Bible is not the idea of a fearful longing for something which I want to happen, but which may or may not happen. That's how we talk about the word hope today. But that's not what the word hope means in the Bible. The word hope means a joyful and earnest expectation of a well-founded good. Biblical hope is not me staring at a brochure for a tropical island and saying, well, I hope that one day I'll have the time and the money to go sit on that beach that's in this picture. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is when the reservations are made, the ticket is purchased, the bags are packed, and I'm simply waiting for the day to come when I get on that plane. That's biblical hope. A joyful and an earnest, full, complete expectation of good. We may not know all of what that trip will entail, but we know we're going on it. That's biblical hope. And what should this hope mean for us? Verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. The man who holds this hope of awaking in the likeness of Jesus Christ, he purifies himself as Christ is pure. One day we will wake up in that purity completely. But through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives, we don't need to wait for the resurrection to do what is right. We don't need to wait for the resurrection to live in righteousness. We may only see through a glass darkly, but that doesn't mean we can't see anything. We can see what 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells us we can see. Faith, hope, charity. These are not obscured. These are here. They are here in their fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. We can know them and we can live in them today. This is the call of the day. This is our mission and this is our commission. Be ye holy, Jesus said, for I am holy. Now, before we move on, let's talk about the connection between these three verses because it's essential. God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts. Behold what manner of love the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. He has poured it upon us through the finished work of Jesus Christ by which we are called the sons of God. And it is this love given to us already, the love that we already have, that then compels us in love both to hope for the resurrection that is to come and to live lives that are pure before Him. Notice the order of operations here. We do not purify our lives to earn God's love. We do not purify our loves to be made worthy 
of God's love, uh, purify ourselves, excuse me, to be made worthy of God's love. God's love has already been given to us. And in response to God's love, we have hope in the resurrection and we purify ourselves, even as he is pure. We follow our Savior in love, responding to the love that he has already given to us, responding to the purity which he has already exemplified, which he then commands and unto us he enables. Don't get the order of things mixed up there. Jesus expressed his love for us already on the cross. We received his love by grace through faith in his finished work. And then the consequences of this love of God which has been poured upon us is that we have the hope of the resurrection and we are then compelled to purify ourselves even as he is pure. Christ shed his love on us first. We then respond to him by loving him back through purity and hope. And make no mistake, to refuse to respond to Christ's love is a dramatic injustice to the blood of Jesus Christ which was shed for us, of which we continue in verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now, this is what I told you to be thinking about last time we were together. This is an interesting verse. This one can be a little bit difficult for us. The New Testament is very clear that Jesus Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So that when we are in Christ, we who are in Christ, the law being our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we have graduated out of that. We have gone from being a, uh, a, no different than a servant in that we are under tutors and governors. We have now graduated into our sonship by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are called here twice already the sons of God. And having graduated into our sonship, the Bible says in Galatians that we are no longer under tutors and governors. We are no longer under the law. So what is John doing appealing to the law? Let's establish this with a little more clarity. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Paul would go on to say, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The law is, and, and, the, and the Bible says this, of course, if, if you want more information on this, I preached a six-part law series in 2019 that I encourage you to go back and listen to. Uh, but what the law could not do in that we are weak, we have no capability of living up to God's law, 
Jesus did for us. Jesus lived up to God's law, and then he was smitten and punished under that law, God pouring out his wrath for our sin upon Jesus, thus fulfilling all of the righteous requirements of the law in himself so that we could live under grace and not under the law. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together, literally made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, trespasses being breaches of the law, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. I already told you, I already mentioned a a little bit Galatians. The entire epistle of Galatians is dedicated to this very topic, that we are no longer under the weight and the expectation and the demands, the legal and harsh demands of the law of Moses. And I say that to establish a baseline. Remember when we interpret the word of God, we always take what is clear to interpret what is unclear. We always take what is foundational to interpret that which is less foundational. And as we see John say these things, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. We say it's not congruent with the New Testament doctrine for us to, for for John to be appealing to the nature of the law when he is speaking to believers. Why would he do this? We're not under the law. Paul has spent a lot of time teaching us this. Did John know of Paul's writings? Absolutely, John knew of Paul's writings. This is not uh, some sort of miscommunication, and it's certainly not a contradiction. We don't have those in our Bible. So then what is going on here? So the word here, translating the phrase transgression of the law, is the Greek word meaning lawlessness. It's used 14 times in the New Testament, and only here in the New Testament is it translated in this manner. In fact, I would call this one of the rare times within our King James Bible where the translation, it's most certainly not an incorrect translation. It's a correct translation of the word, but where it is a very insufficient translation to reflect what I believe the text is saying. This does happen from time to time. And of course, our loyalty at Legacy Baptist Church is not directly to the King James. It is as a translation, but our loyalty is to the text that undergirds the King James, the Textus Receptus, that Greek text that we believe has been preserved. And then we we recognize that the King James is is a fantastic translation of that text. And so we hold to that translation as a fantastic translation of the Greek text. But the Greek text is where our true loyalty lies as it relates to the doctrines of inspiration and preservation. So, this word is used 14 times in the New Testament. Twelve of those times it's translated iniquity. Uh, One time it's translated unrighteousness. And then here, of course, in 1 John 3, verse 4, it's translated transgression of the law. We see that word twice here. And while, as I said, the translation is not technically incorrect, the idea of John's statement here is not to say that the law, meaning the Old Testament law of Moses, has any weight upon the conscience of the believer under grace. But rather, it seems clear to me, and I am making an interpretive decision here, I'm going to present it to you and you can determine whether or not you think pastor is correct or whether or not pastor is kind of crazy. But, it seems very clear to me that John is actually continuing the argument he made in 1 John chapter 2 as he uses this word. And the reason why I believe this is because one of the places that we see this word used 
is in 2 Thessalonians 2. And I'm going to read to you a little bit of the context here, and you'll see the verse highlighted where we find this word translated here, iniquity. Follow it with me. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 10, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity, there's our word, doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, that word let there meaning to restrain, he that now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So Paul is warning here about Antichrist, about the wicked one that would come. And as he does so, he's telling the church, uh, that, well, you're, not in, you're not in the last days yet. You're not in those seven years of tribulation yet. And we know that because that wicked one has not yet been revealed. And then he goes to talk about him. And then in verse 7, Paul says, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. He was saying that though this man we call Antichrist, based upon 1 John chapter 2 actually, though that man called in this passage the man of sin, the son of perdition, that wicked, though this man has not yet been revealed because the falling away has not yet happened, yet the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of the lawless man the spirit of the lawless man, the spirit of the iniquitous man, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. Do you see the parallel to what we were talking about last week in 1 John chapter 2? Compare this with what John has already written to us. John has told us that there are many Antichrists already in this world. He said in chapter 2, you have heard that Antichrist will come. Even so, there are, are already Antichrists. The spirit of Antichrist is already here, John said. And he was warning them against that spirit of Antichrist. This is the same thing, right? This is the same thing that Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2, that the mystery of iniquity is already working. So when John then says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, in the context of false teachers, in the context, of, remember that chapter break. These chapter breaks can be sneaky. Sometimes these chapter breaks do not work in your favor. You're reading the Bible. You say, I'm going to only read a chapter today. And you read 1 John chapter 2. And then tomorrow you say, okay, now I'm going to read 1 John chapter 3. And you forget what you read in 1 John 2. And then you're saying, hmm, this idea of lawlessness, this idea of transgression of the law. What is this? Well, if we were reading from 1 John chapter 2 
and we understood this idea of lawlessness. And John is then saying here, whosoever committeth sin is lawless, for sin is lawlessness. And we say, wait a minute, the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of iniquity is already working. We're connected to Antichrist here. The spirit of Antichrist is the thing that John warned about in 1 John chapter 2. We have a connection here. He's drawing from the context what he's already said in 1 John 2. John warned that there were these false teachers that are coming and seeking to deceive them into thinking that sin is okay. That you can love the world and love Jesus at the same time. That's what these false teachers were teaching. Teaching that Jesus is not the Christ. Because anyone that denies that Jesus is the Christ is, the anti- is, is in the spirit of Antichrist. The mystery, lives in the mystery of iniquity. And John's warning is this, when you willingly sin, when you are living in a manner that is not unto purity, you are engaged in the spirit of this world. You are loving the world, the world which is not of Christ. If it is not of Christ, then it is in fact anti-Christ. You're practicing the same lawlessness that Jesus Christ came to oppose and to save you out of. And if God loved you enough to send His Son to die on the cross to save you from that very thing, to save you from that lawlessness, to save you from the mystery of iniquity, to save you from the spirit of Antichrist, to save you from your sin, and if you have chosen to receive that, uh, uh, that acknowledgement of, or to acknowledge what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross then under what delusion would we dare then live our lives by the rule of the spirit of lawlessness? That's what John is saying here. By what delusion would we live according to a love for this world, according to the things of this world that are opposed to Christ, according to the spirit of Antichrist, according to lawlessness, when we have said and we have indeed devoted ourselves to Christ? So John goes on then to say in verse 5, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Jesus came to take away your sin. In Jesus is no sin. So if I'm in Christ, and in Christ is no sin, and Christ came specifically to put me into him so that I will do no sin, then what am I doing sinning? <laughs> right? Then, how, then under what delusion do I commit myself to the things of the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If we claim to want to be like Jesus, if we claim to want to follow Jesus, if our blessed hope is that one day we will be in Christ's likeness, if the very thing that we long for is that we will awake one day and be like Christ, then under what pretense do we devote our days to that which is in fundamental contradiction to him? That's John's reasoning. But remember how it started. It started with, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. This message is not intended to be here to heap guilt upon you, to heap fear upon you, to make you feel inadequate or condemned or contemptuous. It is here to tell you that there is a call upon our lives. He that hath this hope within himself purifies himself, even as he is pure. We continue then in verses 6 through 10. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. 
For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest in the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness, righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Heavy words here. Now, we've already established much of what this is said. We've, we've already laid this out. We've covered some of this, in fact, ad nauseum, which is why I feel more comfortable kind of jamming all of these verses together. We know what John is not saying here. We know John is not saying that if we sin, we are unbelievers. How do we know that? 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that's our context, right? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, his word is not in us. So unless we want to believe that John is a bipolar schizophrenic, and in chapter 1 he was saying all this stuff about how we're all going to be sinners, and then we get to chapter 3 and all of a sudden he's decided that, no, 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 that's not true, that, 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 that we can't be sinners, unless we assume that, which is not, not a good assumption, uh, not not assumption that has a whole lot of weight to it. We have to go in another direction. So then what do we do with this? Well, I'm going to key in on verse 9 here. And I'm going to teach through verse 9 and then we'll allow that to filter out to everything else that he's saying here. First John 3 verse 9 said, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. This verse has troubled many a believer. And understandably so, if we're not careful to keep it in context. Let's gain some perspective on this. John has already said that we will sin. So let me ask you this. Think through this as we're thinking through it together. When don't we sin? When can't we sin? When we are living in the power of the Spirit of God, right? The Bible tells us that when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are given a new nature, a spiritual nature. And at any given moment, those who are in Christ have a choice as to which nature they are going to submit themselves unto, whether that be the old nature, the flesh, or the new nature, the spirit. And we've talked about this before in Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 8. We can see this in Galatians chapter uh, five, particularly, as the Bible speaks to this concept. I'll come back to that in a minute. And the way that I often like to describe this is kind of like a lamp. A lamp is powered, right? And you plug it into the wall and it's powered. We as humans are kind of like that. We're powered by something. And before you accepted Christ as your Savior, you had one outlet and one outlet only, and that outlet was your flesh. And it didn't matter whether you were doing moral things or immoral things, whether you were doing socially acceptable things or unacceptable things. The thing that you plugged into was your flesh. You did it for praise. You did it to earn favor. You did it to be socially acceptable to others. You did it to impress your church. You did it to please your parents. You did it for whatever reason you did it. But what you did, you did in the power of your darkened heart and unbelieving flesh because that's all you had. But when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God indwells you, the power of sin is broken over you, and what you are given is a new outlet. And that outlet is the Spirit of God. And when you plug yourself into the Spirit of God, then what flows out of you are the things that are of the Spirit, namely... Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And so at any given moment of any given day, you get to decide. See, the flesh is 
buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life, right? The flesh is mortified in that it, the, the power of sin is broken, but you still have the choice as to whom you will submit to. Will you submit to your flesh or will you submit to your spirit? Who are you, which, which are you going to plug into? Something is going to empower your thinking. Something is going to motivate your intentions. Something is going to drive your desires. Is it going to be the flesh part of you, the sin nature part of you, or is it going to be the spirit part of you, the divine nature part of you? And the scriptures, on the authority of scriptures, what the Bible says is that when we are walking in the flesh, we do the works of the flesh. When we're walking in the spirit, we do the works of the spirit. And this conflict, of course, is well understood among Christians. It's discussed in Romans chapter 8, where Paul calls his followers through the spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Because we are not debtors to the flesh, but to the spirit. And then, as I said, I draw you particularly to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, which commands a saying, if we walk in the Spirit, ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul says there, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because when you're walking in the Spirit, when you're plugged into the Spirit, what will come out of you, the only thing that, that, that will come out of you are the things that the Spirit is feeding. And the only things that the Spirit feeds are spiritual things. That doesn't mean the only thing the Spirit feeds are Bible verses. But, as I've said, as Galatians 5 says, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are the things that will flow out of you when you're plugged into the Spirit of God. When you're plugged into your flesh, there's a big long list here in Galatians chapter 5 that says what happens when you're plugged into the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelations, and such like, and other stuff like that. When you plug into the, the, the flesh, that's the stuff that's going to come out of you. Bitterness, anger, selfishness, disobedience, rebellion. These things are the things that are going to come out of you when you're plugged into the flesh. The man who is living in the results of being born of God, those who are living in the results of being born of God, known as walking in the Spirit, don't sin. That's what John is saying, right? Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. This is not saying that anybody who is a Christian, born there is in the perfect tense. Remember what we've been saying all throughout 1 John about the perfect tense? Past completed action with continuing results. It's a results-oriented tense. The person who is living in the results of being born of God is the person who is not sinning because he is walking in the Spirit. He is abiding in Christ. And what does that look like? Well, as we see, it is the man who does righteousness and loves his brother. That person will not be committing sin because he is walking in the Spirit. He's abiding in Christ and this unto fullness of joy. So John is attempting to set a perspective here. The perspective that sin is fundamentally inconsistent with a life lived in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to say. And at any given moment, we are either walking according to the principles of Christ or we're walking according to the principles of Antichrist. 
And if we're walking according to the principles of Christ, we're abiding in him, we will be doing righteousness, we will be loving our brother. And if we're walking according to the principles of Antichrist, we're loving the world, the things that are in the world, the things that are opposed to Christ. And these things are not just of the Antichrist, they are of the devil, who is that great father of lies, who was the one who is that wicked from the beginning, that sinner from the beginning. And so this is not making, calling us to question whether or not we are a believer. It's calling us to question who we're following. When a man says he's following Jesus Christ, when a man represents himself as being in fellowship with Christ, and certainly if he presents himself as being authoritative or as an authoritative teacher in regard to the gospel of Christ, You can know whether or not this is true by how he relates himself to sin. And this is the idea. John is not out of his warning about seducers part of of the text yet. What he's saying to these people is, you know that a person is of God or of the devil, whether they do righteousness and whether they love their brother. So look at these people that are telling you that you can love the world. So look at these people that are telling you that Jesus is not the Christ. So look at these people that are telling you that, 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 that you don't need to worry about sin. Look at them, look at their lives, look at the fruit of their lives, and then realize that these people are not of God. So stop listening to them. That's what John is saying here. Jesus Christ was manifest to take away sin. In him is no sin. So if I'm walking with him, if I'm abiding in him, if I'm in right fellowship with him, I will not be living in a life of sin. Of course, no one, this is the caveat, right? No one's going to do this perpetually. You're never going to stay perpetually plugged into the spirit. Could you, in theory? Yes. Will you? No. Why? Because you're human. Because you get selfish and you get tired and you get grumpy and you have bad days and you have days where you're hungry and you have days where you're struggling and you have days where you're sick and so you get a little impatient and so you get lazy and so you get self-centered and so you get discouraged and so you get diverted and then you get stuck in some rut and then you snap at someone, you get angry, uh, you, you, you lust, you um, covet, you lie, you uh, rebel, you disobey and you do these things because you're human. And then what do we do? Then we identify it. We recognize it. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We get back up and we get back going again. We get back into fellowship and we get moving in that direction again. That's, that, that, that's, that's not a person who's following the devil. Right? That's a person who is still human. That's all of us. But if I allow myself to fall into the trap of saying, you know what? Sin doesn't really matter. Loving the world doesn't really matter. This Jesus is the Christ. That's not really integral to the whole Christian thing. This is different. This is someone who is not walking according to sound doctrine. This is someone who's walking a different path. Yes, I will sin. I acknowledge my sin. I confess it. But when a man says he's in fellowship with God, but in his life, his life is enmeshed in sin, intertwined in lawlessness. He is not walking in fellowship with Christ. And you can know that because his life is enmeshed in sin, because his life is intertwined in lawlessness. He is persisting in the works of the devil. And by this we can know, well, we can know ourselves. And we can know who the false teachers are. The false teachers are actually the focus here, I believe, as we continue the context of 1 John 2. But by this we can also know ourselves. Now, as it relates to the false teachers, 
These people who claim to be following the Lamb, they claim to walk in the light of Jesus Christ, they claim to be abiding in the wisdom of the Word, but in works they deny Him, either in that they are living in sin or that they do not love the brethren. These two great standards that John has set forth in the book. And let me just say this before I kind of turn us inward here. It is for this reason, as I said last week, and I, I heightened it this week, that you need to be careful who you're listening to, in, especially in this time and place. And by the way, as I say that, especially in, in it relates to online, we have far more online listeners than we have people in, in the seats tonight. But to my online listeners, and in regard to online listening, for those that are here, I say be careful. In all reality, the Bible does not actually anticipate a scenario where people are listening to and submitting themselves to teaching about the Bible from people that they do not know and have never met. That's a unique scenario that the Bible doesn't really anticipate. The Bible does not anticipate a scenario where the source of your learning and perhaps the primary source of your learning about the things of God comes from someone of whom you cannot actually see the fruit of their life. That's a, a vulnerable place for a Christian to be, actually. Where you do not know the fruit of a person's life, but you are submitting yourself to their teaching. See, because when First John is talking about warning against false teachers, John says, you'll know them by whether they do righteousness and love the brethren. But what if I don't know the guy? When 2 Peter 2 warns against false teachers, when Jude warns against false teachers, they appeal to the reality of these false teachers, not just teaching, but works. But what if you don't know the guy? My online listeners are trusting that this church has done its due diligence to ensure that I am a man whose life is lived in a manner that's consistent with the teachings of the Bible. Not that I'm a perfect and sinless man, but that I am a man who is living in consistency to the principles of the Word of God. Yet for all my online listeners know, this is an empty church. For all my online listeners know, this is a set that's built in my basement. Right? And of course, I don't say these things to chase away my online Listeners, watch, watch the listening plummet this week. But to make it clear that even in these times when some or all of our doctrine is instilled by people that may even be across the world from you, no man's words give him credibility in and of themselves. The man who is righteous does righteousness. The man who is abiding loves the brethren. This is what John tells us. The man who lives in sin is not doing the works of God. He's doing the works of the devil. And Jesus was manifest to destroy the works of the devil, which means he is working in the spirit of Antichrist, not in the spirit of Christ. And while I believe John's focus here is false teachers, as I've said, I want to take the rest of the time, which is just a minute or two, and turn this to ourselves, inward. We're not here to stand around pointing fingers at everyone and judging others. We're not here to say, oh, I hope, hope so-and-so is listening to this message. We're here to think about where we stand. Are you walking in fellowship with Christ? Is this idea, he that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. He that is righteous doeth righteousness. 
Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Is that the default condition of your life? Righteousness and love. Those things that we do see with clarity from 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, charity. This is intended to be the default condition of your Christian life. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to give you a home in heaven. Jesus died on the cross to redeem you from the power of sin on this earth. He has already done the work. He has already shown unto you His love. He has already made every expression of of Himself to prove to you that He loves you, that He has done this for you, and that the power is there. All of that has already been done. He has already expressed it. It's already there. It's already taken care of. You don't have to wonder whether or not you're a part of that. You don't have to wonder whether or not He loves you enough to give you that kind of righteousness. You don't have to wonder whether or not you're included in that too. You're included in that too. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You're included. Now the question is, are you going to obey? You've accepted the love. You have that hope of salvation. All of it with a singular design. He that hath this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure. Are you living in that purity this evening, Christian? Again, I'm not asking if you're sinlessly perfect. Covered that and we'll we'll keep we'll, we'll keep hitting it because. First John, it's very easy. It's very easy to get distracted in First John. <laughs> but we'll, we'll keep hitting it. But I'm not asking if you're sinlessly perfect because not one of us can raise our hand to that. God does not expect that of you. But you could be. What outlet are you plugged into? Does your life, your words, your thoughts, your actions, your intents toward others within your heart, does it reflect purity? And if it doesn't, let's be honest with ourselves here this evening. If it doesn't, in whatever place it doesn't, in whatever context it doesn't, why doesn't it? Well, pastor, I just can't do it. No, you can't. That's okay. Plug into that spirit and you know what? He'll do it for you. Yeah, you have to submit. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Yeah, it doesn't mean that it's not going to come with discipline. It doesn't mean it's not going to come with having to unlearn some things. It doesn't mean that years of habits aren't going to have to be undone. It doesn't mean that that's not going to take some time. But the question is, are you you walking that path? Or have you just... Yielded yourself to the outlet of the flesh. You know what? It's a whole lot easier to just plug into this one. And yeah, you know, it it complicates the Christian life because now I'm a hypocrite and I have to come on Sunday and dress up and look all nice and smile uh, while while being absolutely filled with uh, wickedness in my heart and mind and and, and heading out of here and being 
being entirely different than anyone else. So I kind of have to guard that, and that's tough. And, and yeah, I'm in constant frustration, and, and uh, I find myself uh, lacking any sort of joy in my life because uh, I'm, I'm selfishly focused in on the things of me. And anytime anyone focuses on themselves perpetually, they're going to be in a depressed state. They're going to be in a difficult state. And then when, they, when you run to the world for the solutions, they say, you just need to focus on yourself. You just need to, you just need to, to, to turn inward more. And then you do that, and you find yourself more unhappy than you were before because turning inward is the, the problem to begin with. Focusing on yourself is the problem to begin with. And then it just becomes a cycle. And you say, yes, but it's, but it's easier. It's easier, but there's no joy. It's easier, but there's no fruit of the Spirit. And if there's no fruit of the Spirit, then you're not going to be gaining, you're not going to be living in those things that Christ has ordained for you. And that's the point, right? These things are written that ye might have fullness of joy. And we can deny it and we can pretend it's not there and we can say, no, there's got to be some other way. There's got to be some way to do it without giving up my love for the world, the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. There's got to be some other way. And you can, you can try to convince yourself of that, but you'll never be able to because you'll never experience the joy. Because this is the way. The way to joy, abiding in Christ. The way to abide in Christ to keep his commandments, do righteousness, love the brethren. May God help us to do it this evening. Let's close in prayer. Father, I ask that you would help us as God's people to be among those who are followers of Christ, that we would see and know and understand the depth of the love that Jesus Christ has poured out for us already on the cross the manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And that it would fill us with the hope of the resurrection that is to come, of which we do not know what we shall be, except we know this, when we shall see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And that in that hope of being like our Savior Jesus Christ, we would not be content just to be like Him someday, but that we would, through this hope, purify ourselves today, even as He is pure. By your grace, help us to be a people who do righteousness and who love the brethren fervently. By grace, protect us from those false teachers who are from us but not of us, who would bring in the spirit of Antichrist, who would bring in this lawlessness, this mystery of iniquity, and who would seek to convince us of things that are not found in the Word of God, who would seek to minimize or marginalize in our lives the importance of following Jesus Christ, grant that each of us would walk in the Spirit and so not fulfill the lust of the flesh, knowing that he who is of God, who is born of God, who is living in the results of being born of God, does not sin. And may we, as we go from day to day, as we go from year to year, as we go from uh, now to then, may we find the road sweeter all the time. May we experience a greater heightening of our relationship, of our knowledge. May we be ever growing nearer to our Savior Jesus Christ. May we be ever more sanctified. May we be ever more pure. 
We know that none of us will be sinless this side of eternity. We long for that day. We look for that day. We hope for that day. We expect that day. But until then, God, grant us to be determined to do the things we can, to live in those things that we see with clarity. Faith, hope, charity. The greatest of these being charity. I commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.